Thank you. My wife isn't joining me on stage, by the way. A lot of people have asked me why, why someone like me would write a book called How to Be a Husband. Um, actually, six people have asked me that, which now doesn't sound like that many. It's, I mean, it's sort of almost not enough to bring it up. But I don't, I don't actually leave the house very often, so I imagine if I went out more, more people would ask me that. And, you know, eventually this intro is really going to work. Anyway, since you ask, the truth is I was originally asked by a publisher if I wanted to write a book called How to Be a Man. And I had to email her back and say, yeah, I'm sorry, but I don't know anything about that. And she came back to me and she said, well, you know, what if it were called How to Be a Husband? And I thought, you know, technically at least, I am a qualified husband. I have all the paperwork and stuff. And I've been married a long time. It was 23 years ago that my wife and I got engaged. Neither of us proposed to the other because neither of us could really make a case for the idea. We just agreed we'll get married with the resigned determination of two people plotting to bury a body in the woods. <laughs> Except, I suppose, if you, if you did plot to bury a body in the woods, you wouldn't ring your parents afterwards to tell them the news. So now here I am, 51 years old. I've indicated a pause there in case <laughs> someone wants to shout out, you don't look it, mate. But I guess he's not gonna turn up. You can't be married for that long, nearly half my life now, without people thinking there's some kind of trick to it. So I went ahead and I wrote the book. And in spite of the title, How to Be a Husband isn't really a self-help book. I don't think the sort of people who read self-help books are looking to be more like me. But I have gathered up a few bits of hard-won wisdom. Largely, the book is a compendium of mistakes. Mistakes I've made so you don't have to, or possibly mistakes I've made so you can too. But the wisdom that I've earned, I've earned I've, it's 12 bits of wisdom, really, and I like to call them the 12 precepts of gross Marital happiness. Now, let me start by, what, what do I mean by gross marital happiness? The concept is roughly analogous to the country of Bhutan's mandated objective of gross national happiness. You'll, you remember that, right? It was, what was it, 1972, when the fourth dragon king of Bhutan first proposed the idea of gross national happiness, which combines living standards, uh, spiritual well-being, environmental stability, physical health, and, and a few other things to develop an index to measure the nation's progress as a whole. And it was a really forward-thinking idea, uh, and it worked pretty well in Bhutan as long as you weren't a member of the 20% or so of the population, maybe Hindus of Nepali origin, who were systematically repressed and then expelled from the country as a group, which I suppose is one way to get your gross national happiness index up is just to kick out all the pissed off people. <laughs> Gross marital happiness works the same way without the mass expulsions. It's, in marriage, you're just trying to construct a domestic operation that leaves you as happy as possible without sacrificing the collective security or the long-term stability of the project. Uh, the 12 precepts are designed to make it that little bit easier. So the first precept of GMH, you, we can call it GMH, right? You know what I mean, gross marital happiness, GMH. The first precept of GMH is go to bed angry if you want to. 
It's sometimes said that a couple should never let the sun set on an argument, but this is wildly impractical. Some arguments are, are by their very nature, two-day events. <laughs> and I think when you're faced with a stark choice between a sense of closure and a good night's sleep, you're almost always better off with the latter. I learned this trick one night after an argument when I was lying awake, feeling a sort of anger, self-righteousness, keyed up, couldn't sleep, and then I heard my wife snoring gently beside me, and I, I thought, if she can do it, I can do it. Since then, I've gone to bed angry loads of times, and you don't, it's fine, you don't actually wake up angry. You, you, it's, like, it's a bit like going to bed drunk. You wake up feeling completely different, if not you know, necessarily any better. <laughs> Marital precept number two. Remember that marriage contains a significant public element. Like an iceberg, the bulk of marriage is hidden from view. But the top bit, the bit you take out and show off at parties, should look exemplary to outsiders. Charming without being cloying, happy without being giddy, entertainingly spiky, but also mutually respectful. Above all, the whole thing should look effortless. Everybody knows marriage is hard. Nobody wants to watch you do the work. Number three. The time-honored debate about leaving the loo seat up or down isn't actually a genuine source of friction in marriage. The real rule, simple and inarguable, is this. Don't piss on the seat. <laughs> if you're a father and you have sons, it's vital that you impress upon them the importance of this rule. When it comes to maintaining a happy marriage, I can't tell you what my failure to do so has cost me. Number four, now, if you're a man, you're going to have to learn how to be wrong. My wife and I have a lot of arguments, a surprising number of arguments, about me not putting the ladder back in the shed. I always tell her it's pointless to put the ladder back in the shed because I only ever use the ladder in the house, and it would be better if we put the ladder back in the cupboard underneath the stairs like we used to before we got the shed. And then I say, anyway, why wasn't I consulted about the switch? My wife generally responds to this by saying, at any rate, the ladder doesn't live in the sitting room where it's been all weekend. And then she'll go on to imply that I'm just being lazy and quite possibly a twat. At this point, I always say, this is no longer about the ladder. This is about the proper way to conduct discourse between human beings. And I will not, on principle, Continue to argue with someone who would use language like that. And for that reason, no ladders will be moved today. <laughs> and that is invariably how I find myself trapped alone on the moral high ground. It's like a VIP room for idiots. In the context of a marriage, a moral victory is something you'll always end up celebrating on your own. If you're going to get on in married life, if you're going to have sex ever, you've got to learn how to lose an argument. And to do that, you've got to learn how to be wrong. Unfortunately, being wrong does not come easy to men, even when they are very, very, very wrong. A man will go to great lengths just to avoid being put in a position where he might be obliged to express uncertainty. Why don't you just say, I don't know? It's one of the things my wife says to me all the time. I always say, if you don't want my impersonation of expertise, don't ask me questions I can't answer. 
Women are actually pretty accepting of wrongness. Some women, in my experience, will even defer to a man's pronouncements when they know he's very, very wrong, if only to avoid denting his fragile ego in public. My wife is not one of those women. <laughs> She doesn't draw a huge distinction between denting my fragile ego in public or in private. It's one of the reasons I love her. It's one of the reasons I won't play tennis with her. But one of the great tactical advantages of admitting you're wrong is that in marriage, nobody wants to be a bad winner. If you love someone, it's impossible to draw much pleasure from forcing them to admit defeat. The few times I've actually won an argument, I've noticed a, a strange, hollow feeling in the pit of my stomach which somehow robs the moment of all satisfaction. And that's not how I want to feel at the end of an argument. That's how I want my wife to feel. <laughs> Number five is about sex. There's a depressing truth in the old and unattractive joke that holds that marriage isn't about having sex with the same person for the rest of your life. It's about not having sex with the same person for the rest of your life. There's no getting around the fact that marriage is, in part at least, an epic exercise in sexual rejection. Being a good hus husband means hearing the word no countless times over many years without being consumed by hurt and self-loathing, or at least without appearing to. It also means gallantly refusing half-hearted offers of perfunctory mechanical sex from someone too tired to contemplate anything else, and then finding a way, five minutes later, to say you've changed your mind. Number six, sex for the most part happens between couples who go to bed at the same time. It's fine to stay up later than your partner if you want to, as long as you realize that you are effectively choosing between sex and news night. <laughs> Waking up your partner for sex, of course, is famously a bad idea, although I've always thought I'd be totally accommodating about it if it ever happened to me. <laughs> Precept of gross marital happiness number seven. The Department of Health currently recommends that men should drink no more than 21 units of alcohol per week and women 14, a consumption ratio of three to two. But that doesn't mean you can divide a bottle of wine according to those proportions. If you're married, it's half each and guidelines be damned. Number eight, there is no good rejoinder to the exclamation, I am not your mother. But among the especially not good ones is then stop buying me ugly jumpers. <laughs> you can take my word for that. Number nine, this is important. It's okay to talk about your kids when you're sitting in a restaurant together. You're with the only other person on earth who cares about your kids. Seize the moment. I said this in a radio interview last week uh, to a sort of radio psychologist in the States, and he sort of, I think he deliberately misheard me, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's right. When you go to a restaurant, you should never talk about your kids. You should only talk about each other. And then there was a long pause, and I went, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's nice to have the courage of your convictions. Number 10, <clears throat> remember that marriage isn't all good. Like anything ultimately beneficial, marriage has some unwanted side effects. It represents an ongoing threat to your individuality, your personal privacy, your fulfillment, and your freedom. You'll be happier once you understand that this works both ways. 
So when you're feeling resentment, for example, it helps to bear in mind that you are also, at some level, resented. Number 11, never go out on Valentine's Day. As far as relationships go, February the 14th is amateur night. <laughs> Book a table for the 13th instead, and you'll have the whole restaurant to yourselves. Number 12, love is one of those emotions that you occasionally have to talk yourself into. In the teeth of the shitstorm of accusation and recrimination that a marriage can sometimes turn into, it's important to take time out to dwell on all the things about your partner that are admirable, exceptional, and charming. Sometimes it's easier to do this when your partner is asleep. <laughs> I'm 51. No. <laughs> Number 13. Wait. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, didn't he say that there were 12 precepts of gross marital happiness? Did maybe he hold back a secret, special 13th precept just in case the hourglass hadn't quite run through at the end of his talk? The answer is no. There were always going to be 13. Number 13, communication is absolutely vital. You should never underestimate the tremendous healing power of sitting down together from time to time to speak frankly and openly about the marital difficulties facing other couples you know. <laughs> Thank you very much.